And again, family, as uh, Joel said, we are returning now to the gospel according to Mark. So I invite you to grab your Bibles and turn and open them to Mark chapter 14. And uh, we're going to be reading today from verse 53 through verse 65. And so I invite you, once you've found your spot, go ahead and stand uh, with me for the reading of God's Word. I'll invite you to read out loud along with me. And at the end of that reading, I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and invite you to respond in true praise by saying, thanks be to God. Mark chapter 14, verses 53 through 65. Let's begin. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and all the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent. And made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy, and the guards received him with blows. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. So here we are. This is actually uh, week 48 uh, in the gospel according to Mark. Uh, We've spent 48 weeks uh, this week together in Mark's Gospel, uh, and we have just several weeks left to go uh, before we will be finished. Uh, God willing, in October, uh, we will complete the Gospel according to Mark, and uh, it's going to be a good thing. Today, we see Jesus on trial, and just so you know, our parallel passages from the Synoptic Gospels are in Matthew 26 and Luke 22. And then in John's Gospel, in John chapter 18. And so, if we think back uh, to where we left off, we left off with Jesus and His disciples having spent the night hours in prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. The disciples were unable to stay awake. If you remember, Jesus asked, could you not tarry even for one hour uh, in the midst of my agony? And uh, Jesus prayed in that agony, asking that if there be any way that the cup of God's wrath would be passed from Him, 
But in that time of prayer, he renewed his commitment to the Father as he prayed. What did he pray? Father, not my will, but your will be done. And then what happens? We see Judas with the chief priests and the scribes and the soldiers come into the garden. And Judas comes and betrays the Savior with a kiss. And what was Jesus' most concerning thought during all of this? Mark chapter 14, verse 50, we see Jesus saying, but let the Scriptures be fulfilled. Let the Scriptures be fulfilled. And so Mark is doing what? He's showing us the determination of Jesus after having prayed to follow through with all that is in front of Him. Not wavering. Even though He's there saying, Father, if there be any way, let this cup pass from Me. And yet, not wavering from that place. The moment He says, Father, not My will, but Your will be done. His face is set like a flint towards where He must go and what He must do. It was Luke that told us that during this time of prayer, uh, as it was after his time of temptation in the wilderness, after the, the beginning of Jesus' ministry, that an angel appeared and ministered to him. Luke 22, verse 43, strengthening him, it says. Now obviously, the angel was not there to uh, strengthen Christ's deity as if there was anything lacking there. There was not. But obviously, this was to give strength to his mortal body. For he was not weak in his deity, but in his humanity. So he arises then with renewed strength and commitment through this passion, this suffering that he knew he must endure, and now it has begun. And what's his foremost thought? Let the Scriptures be fulfilled. All that was happening to Jesus in this moment was foretold and foreshadowed by the prophets in the Old Testament. Even the Psalms and the Proverbs would foreshadow this event as Judas comes and betrays Jesus with a kiss. Psalm 41, verse 9, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. And Proverbs 27, verse 6, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Judas proved himself to be, even after three years, to actually be not Jesus' friend, but his enemy. But Jesus was not caught off guard. Don't, don't mistake this. this is, Jesus was not surprised by what was going on. No, let the Scriptures be fulfilled, he says. This is all according to the purpose and will of the Father. This is all a part of the plan for the consummation of the covenant of redemption. Jesus' life is not going to be taken from Him. He is going to lay it down. Even as He said in John chapter 10, verses 17-18, through 18, For this reason, Jesus said, the Father loves Me, because I lay down My life, listen to what He says, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority, he says, to take it up again. This 
charge, Jesus said, I have received from my Father. So this is not a surprise. You know, the the soldiers showing up, Judas betraying him. He knew from the beginning who it was that was going to betray him. He knew what was going to take place. He knew all these things had to be fulfilled. He's not surprised, even though the disciples are surprised. Even though Jesus, has, we've already seen him in Mark's gospel, tell them several times, hey guys, listen up, hear me, are you listening, are you paying attention? Right, hey, the chief priests and the scribes, they're going to arrest me, I'm going to be delivered up to them in Jerusalem, they're going to put me to death. In three days I'm going to rise again. He's literally said that to them. And yet, when Judas shows up with the chief priests and the scribes, their minds are blown. Like, what is happening what is going on? Can you believe this? And they all run. They, they leave him. They abandon him. Even that was a part of what was prophesied in the Old Testament. And this is what we need to understand. Jesus is not going to be humiliated. He is going to submit himself to humiliation for us and in our place. And each thing that He endures for us is unlocking a new treasure and blessing that is going to be laid up for us, hear me, in Him. In Him. For you cannot access it apart or without Him. For it is in Him that every spiritual blessing is contained. And you must receive Christ And in Him you will be blessed. And there is no blessing apart from Jesus Christ. And so He submits Himself to humiliation. He submits Himself to what the chief priests and the scribes and all of the council are doing. And hear me, all of it was illegal according to God's law. Every last thing that happens to Jesus in these hours is highly illegal. It was unjust. It was unlawful, not only according to God's law in the Old Testament, but even according to Roman law. Everything that transpired in the next several hours was unjust, unlawful, and illegal. But even this was a part of God's plan. That Jesus would suffer to such a degree that there was no way that anyone could say that what happened to Him was justly deserved. All of it was unjust. And why did He go through all of that? He went through all of it for you and for me. Psalm chapter 107, verses 10 through 16 say this. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons. For they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So He bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Then... They cried to the Lord in their trouble. And He delivered them 
from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts in two the bars of iron. Who are they that had rebelled against the words of God? That's us. Who are they that had spurned the counsel of the Most High? That's us. We deserved the bonds that we bear. We deserved the chastisement and the discipline and even the punishment of God. And yet, God sends Jesus to break our bonds by taking them on Himself. Jesus, at the very beginning of His ministry, went into the synagogue and read from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, giving us His mission statement from the get-go. The very beginning of His ministry. Luke chapter 4, verses 16-21 through 21, says, And He came to Nazareth, where He had been brought up. And as was His custom, He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to Him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written from Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1-3. through 3. He read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon Me, because He has anointed Me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The Word of God says, and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This was the mission of the Messiah. The Lord had anointed him. He was the anointed one of God. You understand, right, that Christ is not Jesus' last name. His last name was Bar Joseph. He was Jesus, son of Joseph in those days. The designation of Christ is a title. It is the anointed one of God. It designates him as God's Messiah, the anointed one. And he was the one who was anointed to proclaim the good news. What is the good news? The gospel. That's what gospel means, good news. He was anointed to proclaim the gospel, the good news to the poor. Liberty to the captives. Recovering of sight to the blind. Liberty for those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of what? Of the Lord's Favor. Deserved favor? No. Undeserved favor. What do we call that? We call that grace. Grace. This was the mission of the Messiah, the Christ of God. 
And even though the scriptures foretold what must take place with forward-looking eyes as the disciples had, as everyone else in that region had at that time, it was difficult to understand that the way that God was going to accomplish the work of redemption would not look like the humiliation and conquering of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the council and the chief priests and the scribes and the Romans and the emperor. Instead, it would look like the humiliation of God's only beloved Son. Instead of watching and, and sitting back, if you, if you could, with popcorn while they were destroyed, like Egypt through the plagues, instead it was Christ Himself who embodied the destruction that we deserved through the substitutionary humiliation, suffering, and atoning death that the Father had charged Him to follow through with. This is the final act of the great emptying that the God-man endured. And as we read this today, as we read it, and you, you see Jesus being taken away. It, this was nothing like, excuse me, sir, would you please come this way? I know this is embarrassing, but if, you know, we'll try to avoid all appearance if you just come with us peacefully. There was none of that. From the, from the very beginning, all that they did was to humiliate him. And even in the end, what do they do? We see at the end of our passage, we put together the other Gospels. They're actually covering His head. They're beating Him. That's why they're saying, hey, prophesy. In other words, tell us, who hit you? Spitting on Him. Plucking out His beard. It is and ought to be offensive to every fiber of our being to see Christ Jesus, our Lord, being treated in this way. And if it were not for the great advantage that we have gained through this humiliation and extreme suffering of our Lord, we would not be able even to endure to look upon it, even in the reading of it. As it is something from beginning to end which is so grotesque to our senses, and yet, somehow we have still not yet begun to comprehend the grotesqueness of our own sin in comparison to what Christ had to endure for us. But in order to remove what could be the stumbling offense of the cross, even for us today, let us then consider the great advantage we have gained from Christ's emptying of Himself. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, but we'll pick up in verse 5 and just read through verse 8 today. Where Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but, and here's the language I've been using, what? He emptied Himself. 
by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Beloved, this, this is the inestimable goodness of God and the efficacy of His grace. It is in the light of God's goodness and grace to us in Christ that we find the removal of every disagreeable thing about Christ's suffering and death. How could we possibly be found to be gathered in this place today to celebrate and lift up the name of Jesus Christ, this man we claim to be God by the authority of the Scriptures who suffered, who was beaten, who bled and died for us though He had done no wrong. How could we stand beneath the shadow of a cross to put them on our communion things, to perhaps wear them around our neck. How could something so grotesque, something so un, just mind-boggling, mind-bogglingly disgusting become something so inestimably beautiful for us? Worthy of admiration and adoration. Only in the brightness of the goodness of God towards us in Christ and all of His suffering. Everything in it that was disagreeable, shameful, grotesque, and just plain bad fades into oblivion in comparison to the riches of the mercy and grace of God that was poured out upon us because of it. That's how this grotesque thing becomes a thing of wonder and beauty for us. According to the flesh, it was disgraceful that the Son of God should be seized, bound, and made a prisoner. It was disgraceful that these men who were called the shepherds of Israel should seize Jesus under cover of darkness, should take Him into a private home in the middle of the night and have a trial where even the false witnesses that they are trying to trump up themselves cannot get their story straight. And in the space of nine hours to go from arrest to crucifixion. Where the law of God said someone who is arrested must be arrested during the day. They must be brought to trial and only charged if there is a collaboration, a corroboration of two to three witnesses. That even in the presence of being found guilty, that there must be 24 hours that transpire between the guilty charge and the carrying out of what is then presumed to be justice. And then 
that those who brought witness against the condemned must themselves give the first blows. Every single thing about what transpired as they came together, they seize him in the night, they bring him in the middle of the night before all these people. And what? They're there. They're waiting. This was premeditated. This was all put together as a plan. Remember what happened. He came in. He cleaned out the temple. He made a fool of them as they were trying to rule over all the people. And what did they say? They began to plot how they could not just get rid of him, not just shut him up, not just make him be quiet, but put him to death. And make no mistake, when someone tries to tell you that Jesus never claimed to be the Son of God, they have not read the Scriptures. Here, in the presence of all of these accusations, and Jesus utters not a word in His own defense. We could postulate about why Presumably, it would not have done any good. But finally, when the high priest stands and asks him pointedly, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And here he just substitutes a word because for him, you know, even though he was breaking almost every other law of justice in the book on this night, he decided he better try to cover himself by not... uh, uttering the name of God. And so he substitutes a name for God so he doesn't break that law. Are you, he says, the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said what? I am. The same voice that spoke from the midst of the bush that was on fire but not consumed, when Moses said, In whom shall I say sends me to do what? What was Moses to do? To go and redeem God's people from their bondage. What did the voice from the bush say? Tell him, I am. I am. The one who is. The one who was. The one who will always be. The I am. The great I am. Jesus says, I am. And he goes further. This miscarriage of justice that's being carried out here in this joke of a courtroom He says, this will not be the last time that we stand in session together. That's what he's saying. What does he say? And you will see the Son of Man. We've talked about this in Mark's Gospel. This very simple word, seated. Seated. We've seen this several times already in Mark's Gospel. And what is it always representing? It's representing a place of authority. 
while these men stood to accuse Jesus in the middle of the night in the high priest's house, the place they were supposed to be was in the gates of the city in the broad open daylight, seated on the seats of judgment to render a judgment. But they forfeit their authority. But Jesus says, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. This is what we confess each week in the Creed. From thence He will come to judge the living and the dead. The roles are going to be reversed. And make no mistake, there will be no miscarriage of justice when He who is the just and the justifier is the one who is seated on the seat of judgment. And instead of falling on their faces in repentance and tears before their Maker, the high priest tears his garments and together with the council condemn Jesus to death for something that was not a condemnable offense. At the time that Jesus lived and walked and accomplished his ministry, there were many that rose up and said that they were the Messiah. There were many who claimed to be the Christ. It was not an offense punishable by death. So even in this, the judgment and the condemnation is unjust and unwarranted and illegal. And yet, they carry it out just the same. And so according to the flesh, there ought to be this repulsion as we read this. There ought to be a repugnation from what's happening here. Because according to the flesh, it was disgraceful that the Son of God should be seized and bound and treated this way. Made a prisoner when He was innocent in every single way. But consider this. That by his physical chains as he was arrested and imprisoned, though he was innocent, we are loosed from the tyranny and reign of the devil and his hold over us even though we are guilty. Our condemnation is removed as God made Him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. So the stumbling block of the grotesqueness of the way in which Jesus is treated here in our passage today and the suffering which He endured for us which according to common sensibility our faith might be tripped up. How can this be? What's going on? This is terrible. And yet, for us, the stumbling block of offense has been removed out of the way and has instead become for us the cornerstone and foundation of our faith. Even as Peter 
will say in his letters to the New Testament. In place of the repulsion and the repugnation and, and all the feelings of disgust that we have for uh, the passion and suffering and death of Jesus upon the cross for us and in our place, there comes an admiration for the boundless grace of God who set such a high value on our deliverance as to give up His only begotten Son to be bound and abused like this by wicked men. Beloved, this is the love of God. That the Father did not spare His one and only Son and that the Son did not spare Himself, but willingly submitted Himself to be bound beaten and killed that our souls might be freed from the imprisonment of sin and eternal separation from God. And so hear me, He was bound that you and I might be released. He was arrested and imprisoned that you and I might be set free. He was beaten and scourged so that you and I might receive compassion and mercy instead of the just punishment we deserved. And by His stripes, beloved, we are healed. Isaiah chapter 53 verses 3 through 6. The prophet prophesying of the anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah that was to come. He says he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him on Jesus, on the Christ, on the Messiah, the Anointed One, He has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He endured so much for us. Yet what have we endured for Him? Could we ever repay such a debt? No. Never. And yet our inability does not excuse or exempt us for suffering for His name and for His sake. In fact, in our own hearts, it should be considered one of the highest privileges of our life to endure for the sake of Christ. This is not to make us masochists or sadists. I'm not saying let's sign up for it or volunteer to suffer but to recognize that suffering and even suffering for the sake of Christ is inevitable at some point. Rather, in our own hearts, when persecution arises, and it will, and it will at some point become unavoidable, 
for different seasons and periods of time, then we must see it as our great joy to suffer for the name and sake of Christ Jesus, our Savior. It's interesting. There, there are not uh, any stories that I can think of from church history. I could be wrong. Not many, if any, where the Christians like show up voluntarily and say, hey, here we are. Why don't you go ahead and kill us? So, so don't miss what I'm saying here. We're not going to have a sign up. Okay? But when that persecution arises and it does come to that place where it is unavoidable, that is the time that we lift our voices and sing that God would count us as so blessed that we might suffer for His name and for His sake. Then it must be our great joy to suffer for the name and sake of Christ Jesus our Savior. Instead, however, We often want to follow Christ today the way that Peter did on that night when Jesus was arrested. Did you notice it? In the midst of all that was happening to Jesus, did you see it in the text? Did it prick your heart? Or like me, so callous, did you initially jump right over it without giving it another thought? Mark 14, verse 54 And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Distant, safe, and comfortable. Distant, safe, and comfortable. If I'm honest... If we were having a sign-up, that's probably where I would want to sign up. I can be distant, I can be safe, I can be comfortable. That sounds great. And that's where Peter was on that night. Literally, hours before, saying what? Never will I do, I will go to the death for you, Jesus. Here, hiding next to the fire, like one of the servants. Because it wasn't enough to be close enough to see what was going on. Maybe it was cold that night, it obviously was. If he had to go and warm himself by the fire, he was distant, he was safe, he was comfortable. Next week, we'll see just how far that goes. Because like us, Peter didn't stop at the first fall. But like us so often, the first fall is followed by further steps away. Peter ultimately, though, will learn his lesson. He was granted the great privilege 
many, many years later to die for His Savior, but He did not consider crucifixion even in the same manner as His Lord to be worthy of His death. And so He requested that He might be crucified upside down. And His request was granted. Late in His life and ministry for the early church, He wrote this for them and for us. Listen and see if you hear the lesson that He may have learned while he tried to remain safe and distant and comfortable. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 19-25 through 25. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and you are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten but continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Think about this. Christ could have remained distant. Christ could have remained safe. Christ could have remained comfortable. He could have even called for a legion of angels to smite His oppressors and not even dirtied a fingernail Himself with the work. But He did not remain distant. He did not remain safe. And he did not remain comfortable. Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, took on flesh and emptied himself. He humbled himself and took on the form of a servant without even opening his mouth in opposition. And he gave all of himself in life and in death for me. And for you. How then will you, by God's grace and the help and power of the Holy Spirit, endeavor to live for Him? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today. May you now, God, by the internal preacher of the Holy Spirit, do the work that no man can do. Take these feeble and humble words, God, and breathe life into them by Your Word and by Your Spirit. Cause us, O God, according to Your wisdom and Your loving kindness, to be convicted in the areas that we need to be convicted and to be comforted in the ways that we need to be comforted today. 
in the ways, God, that we have sought to remain distant, safe, and comfortable. Where so many people in our lives that we actually even care about don't even know, perhaps, that we belong to You. I'm not asking, God, that You would make us annoying. But I am asking, God, that You would, by Your Spirit, make us effective. Make us effective bearers of the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we would not be so enamored with distant, safe, and comfortable. Forgetting that you did not remain distant, but came near. You did not remain safe, but you gave yourself completely for us. And you did not remain comfortable, but instead suffered for us and in our place so that we might receive the great mercy and grace of God. God, may we not be so comfortable that we receive so much from You and are unwilling to suffer even in the slightest for Your sake and for Your name. So God, I ask again, by Your Spirit, not according to my word, but according to Your word, And by your Spirit, would you, O God, convict us where we need to be convicted. Move us from conviction to repentance and faith. Let us revel in your grace yet again that you put up with us and love us so dearly. And God, comfort us. Comfort us in the grace of your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.